Today on the Cameron Journal podcast, we have a very special, very interesting guest. Um, my mom is going to be here today, and we are going to talk about every presidential election she has voted in from 1976 to 2020. Um, and we're going to kind of do a tour of the last 50 years of American presidential politics. And we touch on economics and the media and institutions and generational differences and all this type of thing. And so it's a really interesting um, conversation, and I've never had my mom on the podcast before or this close to um, this and what I do in my work and all this type of thing. So it's a very interesting conversation. Um, it was supposed to be an hour. We talked for two. Um, we kind of go through each election sequentially um, and talk about the politics of, of the time. So starting with Jimmy Carter and going straight through to Trump. Um, and we talk about her vote for Trump and her issues with Democrats and all this sort of thing. So um, it's a very interesting sort of conversation and um, it's definitely worth worth listening to. So strap in everybody. This is the Cameron Journal podcast with my mom. Let's go. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are going to demonstrate why parents should not let their children grow up to be social media influencers or political commentators. Because if you let them grow up to be uh, social media influencers or political commentators, um, you will get drafted into being on their podcast. And the uh, test subject we have today to prove this fact about life is my mom. So welcome mom to the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So I got this idea because Mike MG TV had his mom on his YouTube channel and other YouTubers do that. And I thought, hmm, I have a mom. I could have her on the podcast. This could be interesting. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, the first thing I wanted to talk about was I... A couple months ago, I don't think you, I think when I was there last year and I was hanging out during the pandemic, we talked about votes for president. And I was surprised at how many third party candidates you voted for. Yes, I vote what I support, not necessarily what the crowd thinks is the best. I want to support the candidates that most are similar to what I believe in. Right. So your first presidential election was 1970. Uh, would be 74. Right. But we didn't have a presidential in 74. We had a presidential in 76. So your, so the, your first competition was Jerry Ford, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Neither one of them was a great choice. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So who did you vote for in 76? Um, in 76, I actually did vote for Gerald Ford. I could 
Jimmy Carter was a compromise candidate for the Democrats and pretty weak one at that. So yeah, nobody I, had heard of Jimmy Carter before like the DNC convention in 76. Like nope. he was governor of Georgia and was like, nobody knew who he was. Nope. And he'd not made a particular splash anywhere else either. And so yeah, when they brought him out as their compromise candidate, you, you know, one went and researched what he did as a governor and it wasn't particularly impressive and his presidency reflected that. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering what you thought about the picture with Biden and Jimmy Carter. I thought it was like not great messaging because it's like, but Mr. Biden, we're having stagflation. There are gas shortages and we're having inflation and high unemployment. Like, maybe don't remind everybody about the Carter years. Like, <laughs> this is not the time to remind everybody about the late 70s, which weren't great. Like, <laughs> You know, well, I thought that was a weird choice considering what's going on in the country right now. <clears throat> yep, it's the, when you talk about what's going on right now, you've got the 1970 close coming back and now you've got another 1970s president and administration in the Biden administration. And that doesn't, in my view, bode well for the country because it didn't do well when it happened in the 70s. And I just can't imagine that it's going to do much better now. I could be surprised, but it's unlikely. Yeah, I, one of the things I was surprised about that while we're in stuck in the seventies is when I last year I did um, a, a two part episode on the podcast about the presidency, and I I put together all these different clips of presidential speeches, um, including the oldest known recording of a president, Chester Arthur, um, and I I finally had a chance to listen to the Jimmy Carter Malay's speech because I was looking for a quote to put in the podcast. And I was surprised at how he's just kind of like, things are bad, it's bad out there, but didn't offer like any solutions, any hope. Like, it was just kind of like, everything's bad, everybody. Don't know what we're gonna do about that, but it's not great out there. Like, at the time, how did that feel? Um, I me, I was, you know, with the, I couldn't get a job. I, you know, the gas lines were long. Um, for me, it was disheartening. You, you were in Colorado at that time, right? Um, part, yes, partly. Or were you out in Vegas? Not. I was in Vegas for most of it, yeah. which, you know, in Las Vegas, you had gas lines. Um, people couldn't drive across the desert to get to Las Vegas from California because of the limitations with fuel, you know, the even odds. And one of the big things in Vegas was the casinos offered um, gas coupons to their favorite gas stations. so that if you came and stayed there and you gambled X amount of dollars, they actually gifted you a gift card to a gas station to fill you up so you could go back home. You know, and that, you know, was, and, and when you lived there in town, you had to plan you know, for how to get to work and, and spending time to get fuel. It, you know, it was hard and Jimmy Carter didn't choose to try to do anything about the fuel shortages. The, you know, he allowed the embargo to occur. You know, he also had the hostages taken. He was treated with pretty much total contempt by a good portion of the world. 
and he did not, nor did his administration, because I can't say it's just him, it was his administration as well, did nothing to combat that. And for the most part, his administration was pretty ineffective and it affected everyone around. And it was not surprising that he was you know, a, a one-term president because of, of the fact that he lacked strong leadership. I've, I always thought it was an odd thing to keep Henry Kissinger around, considering the way Kissinger basically let OPEC strangle the West. I think in some regards, you have to look at Kissinger as one of the first, if you want to call it this, climate change crazies, you know, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. He, he did not feel that the country should have um, oil. Um, he, you know, he didn't think that cars, there should be all that cars. That was, he didn't like gas guzzlers. That's when you started getting, you know, all these little cars. Because, you know, like the Ford Pinto, you know, the crazy crash blow up kind of Pinto that in Mavericks, that was auto companies first strides into low or fuel efficient cars, because Henry Kissinger did not feel like, for whatever reason, that he wanted to go up against OPEC. You know, this was the Middle East coming together and finally taking a stand against the oil companies in the United States. But at the same time, the, you know, the oil companies weren't encouraged to drill in the United States and the consumer suffered. Yeah, I mean, and especially I think one of the things that I think is also odd about like the, the oil embargo and kind of what happened to the American auto industry at the same time is not only did we have the oil embargo, but then we also, and this was a Nixon thing, put in a bunch of really kind of punishing smog regulations that automakers were totally unprepared for, while at the same time increasing the safety standards for cars, thereby making them heavier. So it's like we're asking car companies to do multiple things at once. It's like we want cars to be much safer. We want them to be much more fuel efficient. <laughs> and we want them to produce less pollution. Do all of those things at the same time and do them by the next model year. Yep. And like that, that's not really from an engineering perspective. That's not really possible. And it wasn't. And foreign competition ate the American company's lunch. Oh, completely. Toyota came along and took right on over. I, anybody that could at that time was getting a Toyota Corolla or a you know Camry. They were all about the Toyotas. And even now today, you'll still see some of the little old older Toyota trucks, the little trucks still running around that was fuel efficient and you were still able to haul stuff around. Um, again, if you had a large family, you weren't going to be able to go anywhere in it because that was at the same time when they you know, instituted the safety standards of you can't ride in the back of a pickup truck anymore. So yeah. you know, people with families all of a sudden you know, came up against this wall of you know, we can't all go someplace together because now the station wagons were going out and so you, you know, th this vehicle problem became a real problem. Even in our family, when we were here in Colorado, we had a Chevy station wagon that all of us could go in, but at the same time we had a Pinto, you know, so that some of us could go. Yeah. Wasn't that the car that grandma was driving on the highway and the hood flew up? Um, yes, it was. 
and she you decided know. it was time for a new car. <laughs> well, you know, it's it was a Pinto. It got you know. Remember, it was being driven by five people. You know, the, I'm amazed the little car lasted as long as it did. Right. Um, you know, it it you know it actually lasted a good long while, and yeah, you know, and I am impressed ha- at how long it did last for as many miles that was on it. But again, this was you know the imposition of. Yeah, with the embargo, this was a big Democrat opportunity to start implementing policies and regulations that they wanted. And as you know, one of the previous administrations said, "Never let a crisis go to waste." And that's the one thing that the Democrat Party and the Bi- and the um, not Biden, but the Carter administration managed to not miss out on was implementing those new regulations. Which you're right, changed the whole auto industry, but it wasn't for the good at the time. Well, and I think that's one of the things that like, like, especially in like car circles, we all talk about how crappy early smog cars were. And everybody wonders like how the Japanese were able to do it. And it's, and it's, the solution is actually really simple. Japan had implemented smog and safety regulations about 10 years before. So all the big Japanese manufacturers had had a full decade to perfect more efficient engines, all this type of thing. And so by the time they really started exporting cars to the U.S., they already were smog compliant. They already had a lot of safety things in place. And so it was an easy thing to do, whereas the big three were basically having to do all of that all at once. And then lo and behold, in the 80s, American companies caught up. But by then it was too late. Consumer habits had changed. And it didn't really necessarily matter by that time. Yes, that, you know, that is true. And uh, there was a lot of hard feelings caused over that within the American population because, you know, for better or worse, Americans love their cars. And they, if you go to any auto auction, you can see that now. They love their muscle cars. They love the look of the cars. And the Carter well, You need to go to an auction. Look at, any, look at any of the big three and how they all the new cars are modern retakes of old styles. Uh, yeah, a little bit. They're not quite as flamboyant as the older versions because of the aerodynamics uh, issue that everyone talks about. I, you know, I mean, you take a Cadillac today and look at a Cadillac from the 1950s and 60s and they are, you know, they are very different. You don't have- Oh the no, they don't, they can't. I mean, they, they yeah. can't build Cadillacs the way they, I mean, those cars were huge. My, my well, art mentor, Jesse Jacob, had a 59 DeVille sedan. The car was massive, 109-inch wheelbase. I mean, the car was huge. But think of the tail fins and stuff. Those were fashion statements that people liked. And you were able to identify a Lincoln from a Cadillac because of the body style. Today, those cars also got 10 miles to the gallon. <laughs> yep. But it, you know, but fuel at that time was cheap too. And that was another issue with the embargo and the Carter administration was that, you know, you went from 10 to 25 cents a gallon, all of a sudden up to, you know, two bucks a gallon and happened to wait in line to get your 10 gallons. Right. And, you know, and, and to some degree, you know, reflecting back on it, 
I believe the Carter administration could have done better with that. But again, it was an opportunity for them to be, bring big change to the country. And to some degree, that's probably the one thing Carter and Biden have in common is that their administrations want to bring about big change for them to be, remind, to be remembered. Unfortunately, if Mr. Biden ends up like Mr. Carter, he's going to be remembered for not good big things, but bad big things. Yeah, so, so then moving into the 1980s, I imagine you voted for Reagan in 1980. Um, I did, um, uh, just because he promised he would bring the hostages back. The hostages was a big deal because it, you know, it was being said they were going to be killed. And Hang on Jimmy, for a second for the listener. Mom's talking about the 1979 Iranian Revolution and the American embassy hostages in case you're not aware of the history. Continue. And Jimmy Carter had been pretty um, indifferent to them being held hostage. And the Ayatollah was pretty adamant he was going to um, have them killed. And Mr. Reagan, part of his platform is, was he would bring home the hostages. And it, you know, at that time, it was a big deal. You know, there was many of them and it was a big deal to get them home. You know, you were seeing about their families and, you know, uh, how that there was no hope. And Reagan gave people hope that he would bring the hostages home. And I, and I voted, be, you know, as one of those things. And he also indicated that he would um, try to make our country stronger and not be bowled over by, you know, any group, terrorist group or whomever that, you know, wanted to bowl over the United States. And for that time period, after we'd been through the embargo and we were doing the gas lines, that was a big deal. You know, and Jimmy Carter wasn't bringing forth anything that he was going to change for the 80s. He basically was still campaigning on the same old, same old. And that didn't appeal to a lot of people. They were tired of this, you know, the gas shortages. They were tired of the hostage situation. And they wanted to see somebody take on the Ayatollah and to actually win. And that, I believe, was part of what brought Mr. Reagan into office. I know a lot of people point to his, you know, taxes and, you know, his, how he handled the economy, but for the near and dear, it was the hostages. That was a big deal. Yeah, I think, I think in, in terms of, of history, I don't think people real, and I'm glad you brought that up. I don't think people realize how at the time, you know, that, ele that 1980 election, how really big that was. I mean, that was like a, a sort of 9-11 of its day because that had never really happened before. It was quite a big scandal. And it really defined the whole campaign. To some degree, it was the only issue that mattered. It was. Weirdly because, enough. Yes, it did, because people were angry about Jimmy Carter leaving the hostages there. They, and I think that was one of the big reasons he lost was because he didn't take the American public sentiment about the hostages serious. And plus this was also a time frame where every time you turned around, an airplane was being hijacked and taken off to Cuba. You know, so this was you know, an issue that people understood and, and were fearful of 
because you didn't want to get on an airplane and end up in Cuba and be there for two or three weeks because some terrorist hijacked you. So when the hostages were taken in, you know, out of the embassy, it was, you know, it was again saying, we can't even come home. We can't, you know, if they take us, we can't even come home. And I believe the Carter administration failed to address that fear in the American people. But conversely, they're all, I mean, Carter was going for trying to negotiate with the Ayatollah and the new Iranian regime. The only option he really had was either to do some sort of daring rescue mission, which they planned and trained for, but never did, and also, or invade Iran. And I don't think that was, especially right after Vietnam, this is four or five years after the end of Vietnam, there was no will to go on another long war at the time. It was kind of, I feel like, between a rock and a hard place on that. That's somewhat, but to be candid about Mr. Carter, he did not come across as a particularly strong and vibrant, and I'm going, I'm what I'm saying, I mean what I'm saying, and you better take me seriously kind of president. Whereas mm. Ronald Reagan came along and, you know, he stood strong, he stood tall, he spoke aggressively, he spoke in that firm voice of which, Perhaps Mr. Carter could have made a difference if he had spoken in that fashion, but he didn't. And, you know, Ronald Reagan came along and, and basically made Mr. Carter look like a wimp. And I, you know, and, and I think that's how the American people seen him. And that's, that's somewhat how I seen him in that Ronald Reagan said what he said, and he meant what he said, and he was going to do what he said. And all Jimmy Carter was saying was not much. And during an election year, to me, you can't have that. I mean, you got to say something. You got to, you know, be aggressive about something. And, and Mr. Carter wasn't even coming out and saying that I want to get the hostages back. He just, it seemed like as the time came, he went, you know, just got quieter and quieter, which was not good for, you know, his campaign anyway. And I believe that is, that didn't help him. No, I, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree. So Reagan, Reagan gets in in 1980, voted for Reagan. Um, 84 comes along, Reagan wins a 49 state landslide, poor Walter Mondale. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, sort of thing. Uh, Reagan again in 84 for you? Yeah, I, I liked what he was doing at the time. Uh, the Contra thing was a problem. I didn't like that, but that didn't come out until much later. Um, I, I'm still not a fan of the major that, or the Colonel rather that pulled off that whole scheme and Oliver North. I, yes, there you go. Oliver North. And I was not a fan. I thought that was too much interference in South America. And I, I know that the claim was that we're trying to make that country better. I, you know, I don't know that that really was a wise decision. Um, considering what we have today, I think that, you know, that maybe, maybe if they'd been a little more aggressive, maybe we wouldn't have the immigration issues coming out of South America that we have. But at the time, you know, it became a big um, embarrassment for Ronald Reagan, for one of his people to have, you know, done this and him to most likely have endorsed it. And, and that came from that also time back to Nixon of when you had a press that, you know, definitely went looking for stuff 
and you know got their facts and got their figures accurate and started producing information and that brought forth the time of the whistleblowers you know that you know we're going to tattle on everything the bureaucrats came to the front you know we had a time when politicians led and then after nixon and carter and coming into ronald reagan the bureaucrats started becoming the you know the deep throats the whistleblowers you know to get an agenda to divide an agenda that they didn't like and so we started seeing that with ronald reagan and the the contra issue and, I mean, conversely, the CIA was basically trading weapons and drugs to have its own funding source for its own operations. I mean, you may not like what Gary Webb did on that, but that's like, that's not great for the CIA to just kind of be like, well, you're not going to give us the money we want. So we'll get our own money by selling right. and, drugs and guns. <laughs> like, yes, and I agree. They should not have been doing that. But to, it, But in some regards, I look at that and go, what's so different than, about them doing that as the Fast and Furious fiasco in Mexico with the guns from the Obama administration? Yes, no, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not saying that those two things are different. I'm just saying like, as an idea of like, of, of like, should the media be exposing these things? Absolutely. I'm right. sad that more wasn't made of Fast and Furious. I think that was quite a damning scandal because we started getting shot at with our own weapons that's yep. not good like, nope, you know sort of thing um the same thing with with the whole libya benghazi thing i going after hillary clinton and her emails was a, a fool's errand but the fact of the matter is is that the whole the way the obama administration handled the whole libya thing was terrible and the country's been plunged into civil war and we haven't lifted a finger to do anything about it well, as, as you have pointed out- And nobody out, makes that big a deal about that. And I think that should be a bigger deal. Yeah, but as you have pointed out in previous conversations we've had, you know, the United, various branches of the United States has a tendency to meddle in countries' affairs. Yeah. Two advantages to not advantages, depending on which side of the situation you're on. Mm -hmm. um, the Libya thing, I, you know, I agree that that was way poorly handled. Um, I think part of the problem the United States has with dealing with the Middle East is they don't understand how so much how the tribal culture works or the, the great impact their religion has on their culture. That's um, so true. The United States has a tendency to think that, you know, if we just bring in our values, you know, that will make them all peaceful and friendly and stuff. And they still have not learned that lesson because, you know, it's the friend, you know, the, the enemy of my friend is, you know, my, you know, or the enemy of my enemy is my friend is how that goes. They'll all squabble among themselves, but the minute an outsider comes in, they all unite and they're ready to take you on. And the U.S. has never adjusted to that thinking. And I, I don't think they're ever going to. I, I think that is so foreign to them that somebody would not want to be a part of the western culture even though that type you know the middle east culture middle east people come to the united states they don't come to the united states to blend in they come to the united states for jobs they come to the united states for a better living they also come to the united states to have their own culture their own tribe 
their own language. They, they do not choose to assimilate. They don't like American laws. And for the most part, they don't like American culture. And that is a problem with the American people's failure to understand that. And that's a problem with the American government's failure to understand that, which is why we continue to have problems in the Middle East, I think, as well as in Minnesota. Yeah, well, and this is and this is an area where um, then we'll come back to 1988 here in a second. That that's an area where in in Europe it has been a long-standing political problem for about ten years. The Syrian refugee crisis has brought it into focus, but particularly in France and elsewhere, it has been a major political thing for about ten years. Of you know no-go zones, how to handle public spaces. Um, I saw a video from uh, the German TV service, um, DWTV, um, Deutsche Welle, and they were talking about how like in, in lots of neighborhoods, especially in the suburbs of Paris, the majority of the population surrounding is, is Muslim. And, and women, even non-Muslim women, are oftentimes bullied into not being in public spaces. Yes, and there's and, and, it's, and this is completely anathema to French to to like normal modern French Western culture, and this sort of thing goes on. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a really terrible. I mean, how long before it comes to this country? It's already started. You look at Minneapolis, Minnesota, and you can already see what's going Huge on. Huge Muslim population, yeah. Yes, a little Somalia. You know, they up there, they still deal with you know they still do female genital mutilation and though there's laws against it they still do it you know they as you pointed out they still bully women yeah they the men are of the opinion that women shouldn't be out except in burkas or whatever head to toe covering or with a man yeah like yeah. No, I mean, I, I ran into that in, in Paris myself, and I wasn't staying in the suburbs. I was staying pretty close into town. There was a, a local bar that was very, it was, it was very, because it was a kind of a working class neighborhood I was staying in. And uh, yeah, the local bars, it was, it was men only. There were, it's a good thing I wasn't trying to meet any girls because there were none to be found um, in, the local, in the local bars, like. Yeah. They don't believe women should go out in public at all unless they're escorted by a family member. And, you know, no, no socializing unless they choose what your social event is going to be. You know, as a side issue, people here in America talk about um, slavery and the ramifications of slavery, but they fail to look at the Muslim culture and see that women basically are treated like slaves. And they don't want to address it because as you and I have spoken to in the past, they're afraid. The Muslim community, the the males in that community have no problem causing destruction as we've seen in Paris and various other Western European countries. And I believe Americans here are afraid to confront the issue for having, you know, for the same thing occurring and so in not combating it face to face, they are allowing that culture to take over, you know, the American culture. You can look to, you know, any of the, you know, for like Pakistan and stuff, 
you know, pre-1970, Pakistan, the women dressed just like Western women. After 1970, they were in the head-to-toe covering and couldn't do anything. And no, that was true in Afghanistan as well. Many parts of the Middle East were modern and progressive and all that sort of thing. And then when Wahhabism out of Saudi Arabia came in, all that progress was lost. Yep. And even now, you know, in Saudi Arabia, you know, you, you as a female try to drive and they're apt to stone you or throw you in jail, depending on if you're poor or if you're rich, you know, or if you're a member of the royal family. But you still, as a female, will be punished for that. And that's the kind of problems that are coming to the United States when they've exported their schools and their religion here to the United States and like CARE allows this and encourages this to be implemented into the public school system. And most Americans that are non-Muslim do not fight back because they're afraid. And you know, being fearful just means you're giving up your culture to be overwhelmed by this other culture. And my question is in say 30 years, what's this country gonna be like? All, you know, are, we'll never have, be able to have another Playboy magazine. We'll never be able to have another bikini model on front of Sports Illustrated. But yet yeah, no one yeah. thinks that will happen, but it's already happening over in Europe. No, for certain, for certain. Well, speaking of the 80s, we've got, we're up to 84. Um, Granada and Beirut. Ronald Reagan, for all of his posturing, had a lot of kind of low-level conflicts that resulted in in deaths. You had um, Black Hawk down in Somalia. You had the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. You had the whole Grenada adventure and disaster. But that never seemed to affect him electorally. Why do you think that is? I think he was like Bill Clinton. He had Teflon coating. Yeah. Really, truly, I yeah. I, he could he could lay it off onto other members of his administration because he, for the most part, was never really associated with these events. It was always members of his administration that led the events or made the decisions. I mean, he had so much plausible deniability; it was incredible. Yeah, you know, that he just wasn't seem to be part of it you know it's other members of his administration and I don't know if that was necessarily because he had a strong loyal group of people that protected him like that or if his administration really was that bad it's hard to say but yeah I mean by by the number of criminal indictments is a bit damning though there were over 200 criminal indictments of various and sundry Reagan people that's not great History's kind of forgotten that, but that's not great. Well, yeah, it's again, you know, you are coming to the end of the big investigative reporter time frame, and everybody wanted to be Woods and uh, Woodward and um, the other reporter. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember his name either, but yeah, Bob Woodward and whatever his name was. Right. They wanted. Everybody wanted to be those two. Everybody wanted to have their big deep throat uh, contact. Watergate scandal, yeah. Yes. And so you, you know, 
there were people still actively, you know, digging through stuff like that. And so, and, you know, just like what happened, you know, with people's reactions to Donald Trump, same kind of reactions with Ronald Reagan. You know, Democrats, you know, were just, you know, not happy. They, you know, they were angry. Um, so they, there was always something or someone rather looking to find a crack in the facade so that they could say, oh yeah, you're an evildoer, evildoer. And, you know, we want, you know, looking to try to impeach. And, um, you know, that, you know, like I said, you know, Ronald Reagan, he was pretty much Teflon, you know, people liked him. I'm not sure if they liked him because he was an actor who, again, you know, spoke strong, acted strong, acted decisive and, uh, you know, so on and was willing. I think this might be the issue. He was willing to step up and try things or his administration was. So, and they failed. Don't get me wrong. There was several that failed, but there was also several that succeeded. But we always remember the failures. We don't always remember the successes. I, I think the the my thing with the Reagan years that I think is so impactful is so much of the modern media environment, financial environment, and corporate, oh my goodness, heaven forfend we regulate anyone. I think like that all really was pioneered by Reagan. He broke the back of the unions by firing the air traffic controllers. They deregulated a lot. They actually did not lower taxes. Reagan raised taxes 13 times. Ted Cruz would be good to be mindful of that. Um, all this sort of thing. But like so much of like the problems my generation have had and so many of the economic difficulties that we have endured really started under Reagan. And I, I wonder like, like, because you were, you know, in your, like, 20s and the 80s, if you understood that at the time, like, what the long-term reaches of that would be, or if it was just kind of temporary day trading to get the economy out of the slump of the 70s. For me, it was more along the lines of, hooray, we actually are able to get jobs, hooray, we actually can afford to do things when we had been through the 70s when you couldn't do a whole lot of anything. And I don't know that people particularly thought about it, but you also got to remember in that time frame back then, people, you know, though Lyndon Bain Johnson and Kennedy were making the effort to set up the great social net and, or safety net for everybody, people still wanted to deal with their own money. And they did not necessarily believe the government was wise steward of that. And that has become a cultural issue because of the baby boomers. And where, you know, and I'm on the back side of that. And so my views don't match the boomers on the front edge and how they thought that everything should be socially changed. But even then, they didn't want to socially change it until it started affecting them. And that's when you started getting a lot of changes with them teaching their kids, because then all of a sudden, they're the over 30 crowd instead of the under never trust anybody over 30 crowd. All of a sudden, they were the 30 crowd. And then all of a sudden, these things started mattering to them. They wanted to keep their money and you know, they didn't want to pay all the taxes. And, you know, so you know, that came into being. And I don't believe that they recognized that. 
And if today's any indi indication, they still don't recognize that. And I, you know, I'm anti-government. I'm the first to admit it. I think the government is way too intrusive in so many areas. And I know that there, you know, you and a great many of you out there are of the opinion that the government, you know, should just take the money, take the money, take the money and spread it out across to everybody and make everybody equal that way. And I still fail to see how taking everybody's money by way of 99% in taxes is going to achieve the equality in wealth goal that you all are striving for. I, I don't know that the reality really is there other than I identify with the fact that being poor, as, as you pointed out about your age group is unpleasant because the seventies were like that too. I just, there's just never been a good answer. And, you know, trying to increase the tax rate to such a level has been a problem for a lot of people personally. And I don't know, I'm not sure how you convince people that they want to be willing to give up all their money. When it comes to economics, I think one of the biggest problems that Reagan did that has affected my generation is he undid all the regulations and taxes of the New Deal that caused the great prosperity that much of your generation benefited from that was not given to your kids. See, I don't think And that I feel like it was like it was like good at the time for you guys, but had an adverse benefit on us. See, I don't view that that way because I don't see that the New Deal did that. I see that as World War II came to an end. Everybody had sacrificed mightily for that. And then when peace came, there was all these people, these men and women that came home, and that was when people started inventing things. You had all kinds of scientists and stuff come out of that war that were ready to build things, create things, you know, and, and go forward with this. So I don't see the New Deal as the trigger for that. I see more of the, when everybody started coming home, you had a housing boom, you had a baby boom. You had a job boom. They, you know, you had all of this, and you are correct in that they've not passed on their money. Matter of fact, you know, as you well know, in our family, we did not get the benefit of that either for one of the boomers. Um, but but conversely, though, at the same time, we also during that period had huge government investments in science, R&D, and research, which eventually would get us to go to the moon and all sorts of other things. Like we, you had, um, you had, you know, reasonably high taxes so that you had well-funded government services. We regulated prices on everything from airline tickets to taxi fares to commodity prices, which are even still regulated to today. Like the economy was constructed in such a way that, wages and productivity were oftentimes tied together. And we also had the advantage of being pretty much the only country not destroyed by World War II. So everyone was ready to buy our stuff. So we had a wonderful export economy. And I feel like with Reagan and his 
let's set the country fee and get rid of these regulations. He allowed the banks to start merging again. He all the all the things that FDR and company tried to solve about the Great Depression, Reagan undid, and then we had two thousand eight. Um, yeah, I can see your point on that. I I don't I I I agree with you about the regulations. Uh, not in all areas has the lack of regulation been a benefit, and we're seeing that today with the consolidation of of the movie industry. Um, you know, internet companies, um, you know, just some companies just being completely dominant. Uh, and I can see that, you know, and I agree, that is a problem. I don't know that imposing all the regulations back solves the problem in that what it ended up being was with those high taxes was once again, even worse than what we're doing now we were subsidizing everything. And I don't know that subsidizing everything is the answer either. I, I think a lot of people and businesses prefer to be successful on their own, though maybe now after the pandemic, maybe that you know, is not so much with the, you know, all the checks coming out. But the people at that time, which is not like now, were more into proving for, you know, proving themselves, building their own businesses, you know, being independent, you know, it was a whole different breed of people. And I believe that that's what today's people fail to understand is that to, the people of today are much different than the type of people back in the 60s and 70s. Because back in the 60s and 70s, we were raised to do it ourselves. We were raised to rely on our families and our friends and mostly ourselves to be able to raise a family, be able to support the family and so on and so forth. And that was important to you know, the people back in that time frame. And so therefore for them and me included, it was important that we be able to keep as much of our income as we could to be able to achieve that goal. And, but that was how all of us were raised. You know, I was raised on a farm. On a farm, you had to be self-sufficient. You had to be able to butcher your own critters. You had to be able to go out and round them up. You had to grow your own food. You didn't get to go to town and buy your food out of the grocery store all the time. That just didn't happen. So there was an independent streak there that was not happy that the government was taking their money and Ronald Reagan tapped into that. He had seen how, or he understood how people resented their money being taken to support and I, and I know I'm going to catch grief for this, for the welfare state, the welfare people, because at that time, being on welfare was considered a bad thing. You, no one wanted to be on welfare. No one wanted to be showing up in the social services office to take money and get food stamps. That's just how it was. Whereas now that's different. And I believe Ronald Reagan tapped into that anger 
about how the government was taking a person's money to support these other groups of people. And that was pretty powerful in that time frame with those people. No, no, I think that makes a lot of I think that makes a lot of sense, which brings us to 1988. We have George H.W. Bush, who'd been vice president for eight long years with Reagan, and Michael Dukakis? Yes. I should have looked yes. this up ahead of time, um, rather than relying on memory. Um, yes, so um, 1988 was a very important election. One, I was born. So you were heading to the polls with a six-month-old. Yep, <laughs> and I did not vote in for November. Him. And I yes. did not vote for him, no. You know, but you didn't that, vote for Michael Dukakis, I bet. I did not vote for him either. That was the first time I voted for a third party. Yeah, which is just, and and it's kind of funny because I remember the first time we had this discussion, I was like, oh, I know how you voted for every presidential election since you could vote. And I literally got almost all of them wrong, um, <laughs> including this one. Um, so what was, okay, so I get not voting for Dukakis. He was he was Michael Dukakis. Um, why didn't you go for H.W. Bush? He was to be candid, he was slimy. I mean, he was the director of the CIA at one time. Uh, you know, I think you have to be slimy to do that job. That's like, probably true, but unfortunately, <laughs> he was not able to get away from that. And even though, you know, his wife worked really hard to make him, you know, look all warm and fuzzy, you know, and she came across as a very warm woman. There was, you know, I just, I did not care for his behavior. I did not care for what he had done with in, you know, um, in Maine. I didn't care what he had done for in Texas. Um, he, well, he's what, you know, one would call today. He was a beltway politician. There was, there was not a means for him to connect in particular. And I'm not quite sure why so many people connected with him other than the fact that Ronald Reagan endorsed him because he was Ronald Reagan's vice president. And that wasn't right. good enough for me. Hmm. Okay. Now, I think a lot of people don't know that actually Bill Barr, who was attorney general with Trump, was also George H.W. Bush's attorney general and squashed the Iran-Contra investigation. Yep, he sure Which was. I thought was very interesting. Bill um, Barr, you know, was, yeah, Bill Barr has been in a lot of things. You know, he, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a, you know, he's a Beltway bureaucrat. You know, and yeah, there's, hardcore. there's abundance of those. Yeah, hardcore. So now that kind of fast forwards us to 1992, <laughs> Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton is the first baby boomer candidate for president. He was your generation's first candidate for president. Um, and I don't believe you voted for Clinton in 92. I just nope, it, don't it, understand the world where that would occur. Yep. Um, I know what Bill Clinton was in Arkansas. No, no, no. You know, he he was a he was a womanizer in Arkansas as a governor, and I you know, and I understand he tried to do much better when he decided to run for president. He was very charismatic, except that he had a lousy reputation in Arkansas, and I was not willing to endorse that. 
Yeah. And then and then still no no bush for you. Just both no, times. You're just like, no, no thank you. Nope, no, nope. thank you. Uh, was how did you feel about George H.W. Bush handling the Rodney King riots in '92? A lot of people felt like he didn't really do enough, didn't bother, didn't care. Well, yeah, probably he didn't. You know, we had had the Harlem riots back in the '60s, and you know, you let you let the city burn down. It refreshes, you rebuild it, and you start over again. And that's basically what heart, you know, what happened in LA during those, you know, riots. And then, you know, basically what happened under Bush's, you know, uh, administration was, you know, it, it wasn't Harlem. I can't remember what it was in LA, but uh, you know, they had the riots back in the '60s there, and you know, burnt everything down. And it, you know, it was a repeat. Yeah, it, and I think. Bush didn't care because he had already been through the first set of, of riots in California. And so it was just like, oh, ho-hum, you know, this is what they do. You know, we'll send in money afterwards. We'll rebuild it. And, and the cycle repeats. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another kind of one-term president, what do you think really tilted the 92 election for Clinton? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I think history remembers it as read my lips, no new taxes. Yep. And then he raised taxes. But like, do you think it was just the taxes thing or was it something else? I, you know, I think it was the taxes thing. I think it was also that he did not continue the Reagan um, legacy, which a lot of people expected. And I believe that they, that a great many of the voters uh, were angry about that he didn't follow through on you know what he you know he had said he would when he said he would take over he would just continue Ronald Reagan's policies and then he didn't and um, people noticed that I also think that you know again at that time we were starting to um, see more in the line of social unrest you know Rodney King lasted longer than anybody expected. And then um, you had uh, the, this idea of um, just, you know, too, too much violence in general. Uh, you know, well, let me, let me rephrase it. You could put it on TV as a video. You could now start beginning to put it on the internet as a video. You were able to reach out to more people than before when you had just the three news networks. And 92 was kind of a start of that because the internet was, you know, coming on, really coming out, you know, becoming public and people were throwing everything up there, you know, to see. Well, and the 24 hour cable news cycle by that time was yep. full swing. And yep. the, the Gulf War in 91 had CNN kind of really made a name for itself with that. So you know, that completely changed the media landscape. Yep. And so, you know, everything you were, people were just getting bombarded all the time over this. And I think that added to his problems as well, because I don't believe he had a team that was able to utilize the media as, as well as Clinton did. Uh, Bill Clinton had a team that knew how to utilize that and they did it to the best that anybody until Obama has ever done it. 
and um, that I think did not help him. He, you know, he was exposed to a lot of things that him and his team was not prepared for, and it and it showed. And you know, it's Clinton came along and you know showed how you could be charismatic. You did, you know, you could be a good old Southern boy and still be charismatic to you know to people that weren't from the South. And that reached, you know, that really reached a lot of people, except for those who knew him in his home state. You know, they, they knew what he was, but everybody else was pretty naive and bought his, you know, bought his deal. So, you know, that, you know, that was, I think, part of his issue as well, because now all of his, you know, all of his problems were being shown up by the Clinton team, and he didn't have a way to, uh, reply back and counter counteract on those um uh items that were brought forth yeah i the other kind of aspect of this that i think was very interesting and i think bill clinton became a victim of this certainly by the late 90s with the lewinsky thing is and i i think this has definitely been true since the reagan years and i think it's an outgrowth of the 60s a lot of moralistic hand-wringing you know like the oh the you know the kids do not dress properly and they say weird words and they're doing drugs and the drink and all this. And there's kind of all this moralistic hand-wringing going on about, oh. you know, the morals of society just aren't what they used to be. And oh. I feel like both Reagan and Bush really capitalized on that. That's been going on though. That was back in the twenties. I mean, go back and look at the roaring twenties and see how parents carried on about that every generation has had its rebellious moments and their parents have wrung their hands about it forever. And that's not even changed up to today. Now, capitalizing on it, absolutely. Uh, any charismatic candidate has been able to capitalize on it and gather the, the hand ringers on one side and the rebellious types on the other. And I think the boomers was a shining example of that because they were the biggest generation to be rebellious. You know, there, you can't trust anyone over 30. I, that really made an impact down the line. And any, you know, any candidate, as you put like Clinton coming forward, if you were political and you were on the campus in the seventies and stuff, you were part of that and you knew how young people felt. And he made the most of that. He absolutely reached out and made the most of that. And Obama came along and repeated it, you know, that he was able to reach that rebellious group of people and say, you know, I hear you, I understand you, I'm willing to be there with you. And Clinton and Obama were great at that. They had a media team that really knew how to manipulate that and very successful. No, definitely, definitely. So we fast forward to 1996 uh bill clinton bob dole bob dole is still alive did you know that i did i he did was on cbs that. sunday morning last week. i thought i honestly thought he was dead um to yep, be quite nope. honest with you i thought he I, died I, I was surprised still alive still here yep, i read about his birthday he had had a birthday and that's how come i knew he was still alive yeah um so bill clinton Bob Dole. This is the first presidential election I actually remember because I was eight. Yep. Um, 
And it's my understanding you also did more of your third party voting. I did. <laughs> Still so we, gonna vote for we those know, two main I mean, we now, so we got, when you know your issues with Bill Clinton, and, and a year later, we would, the whole country would be introduced to it. Um, what was wrong with Bob Dole? Jimmy Carter, Joe Biden. He was just another one of them. There was nothing charismatic about him. His policies were not particularly forceful. Um, he was, you know, he didn't come across as making sure or, or intimating that he could make his policies workable. Um, he was a senator. I mean, senators are not particularly known for being strong candidates. They're more, you know, along the lines of glad handing and, and backroom dealing. You know, and that's, even though those are probably good traits for a president, they're not good traits to have on the campaign trail. And for him, he just never came across as a strong candidate that could be taken serious to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, that's interesting considering, you know, I, I feel like 96 was a race for Republicans to lose because the Clintons were already, by that time, Whitewater had started. Clintons were already on the back foot in 96. And I, I that was something where it's, it was, it's, it's almost kind of interesting that he got the nomination and then subsequently managed to lose when the wind was really at his back. He was a compromised candidate. Not enough people liked him. You know, and a lot, not enough people knew about him. He was a senator from, or the former senator from Kansas. You know, Kansas knew, Kansans knew about him, but the rest of the country was pretty clueless on what his positions were on things, you know, on, uh, you know, agendas and economy and stuff. And he, you know, he was a compromised candidate. The Republican Party couldn't come to an agreement on a strong candidate. And, you know, he joined the ranks of, you know, Jimmy Carter, except that, you know, Clinton was still strong, strong enough. You know, why would you vote for a Republican who was that weak when you have Clinton? For a lot of people, that's what it came down to is, you know, you know what you're dealing with with Clinton. He's, you know, he's just got problems all over the place. And you've got this unknown and a lot of people didn't want to deal with an unknown, especially a possible weak unknown. Mm, and I mean, that, yeah. remember his wife, everybody grudged him his wife. She was a very strong character and people didn't like that at that time. Would become a senator herself a couple years yep. later. But yeah, you know, she Dole. was, you know, from their perspective, she... They, a lot of people thought that she was going to be what Nancy Reagan, what they thought Nancy Reagan was, running the presidency, and like Hillary, running the presidency from the shadow of the first lady. And a lot of people did not want to have that with uh, Mrs. Dole. They already yeah. had it with Hillary Clinton. They'd already had it with Nancy Reagan. They did not want another woman doing that. No, that definitely makes sense. So... Late 90s, we have the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the Clinton impeachment. Um, I don't imagine your opinions are that crazy about either of those topics. Um, so that probably well, gets it. I mean, Monica was stupid. She was, 
and, and it's unfortunate to call her that, but she was she was naive and stupid. You know, she's in the White House. You know, it's awesome. You know, she is where there's power. And here's Bill Clinton, who is a known flirt, a known womanizer. And she's based, she's an intern. She's basically a nobody. And here is this powerful man who's interested in her, who I can't imagine, you know, any young person like that that wouldn't be caught up in that. And of if her anything, own admission, that felt bad for her. Well, and of her own, of her own admission, like she has admitted in like her book that that was a huge, a huge factor. And yeah, so it's, you know, her life was destroyed and the Clintons went out of their way to destroy it. And, and that's the thing I don't like, didn't like about Bill Clinton at that time was he could have manned up and admitted that he did it and that he was wrong he could have taken responsibility and probably would have never even got to an impeachment if he had just owned up to it. Instead, well, I think more people were mad about the fact he lied about the affair than the affair yeah. itself. I think if he'd come out and said, yes, I've been stripping my clerk, people yeah. probably would have been more forgiving about it all. It was the lie that pissed people off, not the fact that, I mean, presidents have been philanderers. Hello, John Kennedy. Um, well, <laughs> we're kind of used to that. I think it was the fact that he kind of lied about it. And it was it piled on, like, the Whitewater deal didn't make any sense. That seems steezy. All of a sudden, there's this Monica Lewinsky thing. That's, like, it was just too much skis. And Republicans, being ever the political opportunists, being the politicians that they are, took advantage of the moment. Never waste a good crisis. Neither party wastes, wastes a crisis. That's just the being poli a politician. That's, po that's being politics. That's, that's, being po that's politics. So we're up to 2000. George W. Bush and Al Gore. Oh, no. <laughs> I will allow that I voted for George W. Bush. And Pete, the listener should know, we had a Gore lie man with the BER and Lieberman crossed out sign in our front yard. I was 12. I remember I helped make the sign. Yep. I, you know, at, I regret that vote. I, because what happened with 9-11 and what George Bush brought into being after that with the, um, uh, that the Patriot act, act. The Patriot yeah. Act, yeah. The Patriot Act. That, you know, that is probably the one vote I seriously regret because he truly, everybody thought that he was, you know, a centrist and turned out that he definitely was more of a surveillance state kind of guy. Yeah. And I, you know, I really, I, I can't say that he didn't step up and do well with 9-11. I mean, he did do the good leadership thing. You know, he was there. You know, he was compassionate. He was understanding. He did the whole thing. Everything was great with all of that. And then there was the Patriot Act. And at that point, it was, okay, that, that compassion part was a facade because this is who you really are when you want this surveillance state. And, and I got to say that, you know, once the bureaucrats got their teeth into that as well as the politicians after him you know it just you know it continues to be exploited the patriot act continues to be exploited and utilized against americans 
And that's one of the reasons why I regret my George W. Bush vote. You know, he, he also made a mess out of the economy. You know, he wasn't the compassionate conservative that he claimed he was. And, you know, I think a lot of his policies has been a problem coming forward as well. Yeah, and well, and economic. I think the the difficult thing economically of the Bush two years was we had the dot com bubble, and then the the recession after nine eleven, and those two nine eleven kind of got the press out of that. But that recession was already coming because of the dot com bubble. Economy was already on shaky foundations, and then nine eleven just sealed the deal. Um, and then we did the whole housing thing and housing lending expanded. And then, well, we saw what happened with all of that. So, um, yeah, it seems like on, on either end, um, in fact, he said in an interview about the financial crisis one time, my presidency started with a crisis and ended with a crisis. You know, it was just kind of all eight years. It was just sort of a sort, sort, sort of a crisis. Um, the invasion of Afghanistan over 9-11 made sense. Uh, the 2003 Iraq war invasion. I don't remember what your opinion of that was at the time. Well, I, I was somewhat ambivalent about the invasion. I was not a big fan of it. I, I think that they just wanted a regime change that was a little more friendly to the United States. And instead what has happened is that we just have bigger problems in the Middle East now, and those problems now are crossing the ocean to the United States. So I I don't think that what what they may have thought they were going to achieve I think backfired spectacularly as we are seeing today. Yes, and it's kind of funny because so that brings us to two thousand and four. I gather you did not vote for Bush again. No, I did not. And I did not or vote for Obama. Party voting. No, that was John huh? Kerry. That was John Kerry. I did, still didn't vote for him. I still went back to I went back to the third party. Yeah, it's more of your third party voting in 2004. Um, we kind of had an interesting like right. So George Bush wins election in 2004 quite handily against John Kerry and the whole swift boat veteran thing and John Kerry's record in Vietnam and George Bush's record in Vietnam and all this sort of thing. Um, and a lot of kind of old boomer issues around Vietnam kind of churned up in the 04 election. Yeah, um, And then in 2005, we kind of find out that the whole Iraq in, the whole Iraq invasion was entirely unnecessary. There were no weapons of mass destruction. It was all sort of a lie. For my, I was 17 in 2005. For my generation, this would be kind of the, the first of a couple seminal moments that I think would really define us politically. So I think the lying over the Iraq war would have a great effect on my generation, especially the older contingent that was in college or their twenties when that happened, I'm in the middle of my generation. Um, and then of course the financial crisis, but what did you think about the fact that it all kind of came up that the whole thing was a lie? There were no WMDs to be found. Well, in my case, I, you know, I am generally skeptical of politicians anyway, and secret agencies on top of all that. Um, but I was not thrilled with how the retaliation was over the oil fields either. Um, 
there, you know, there was problems with that as well. And I don't, I don't think either side could have handled that particularly well. The WMD issue, I, I agree. I think it probably was an excuse to invade. I am, you know, even now I'm still not quite sure what the best excuse was for invading other than, you know, just wanting a regime change. Um, or, you know, to some degree I could see, you know, trying to recover oil fields. You know, OPEC was still flexing its muscles at that point and driving up fuel prices. So, I, you know, I could see that there's a, a lot of reasons to do it, but after 9-11, you know, it wasn't such a far-fetched idea to accept WMDs because you just had, you know, three airplanes used as weapons of mass destruction to destroy parts of the United States. So it was not hard to get people to be willing to entertain the idea that there was more there that could come to the United States and do more mass destruction. No, and I, I think that was, I mean, I think that's why it took so many years to figure out that it was, we were sold a bill of goods that was not necessarily what was on the tin. Just and, the fear of the time. Yes, you know, and, and, you know, again, politicians know how to, to manipulate that, and politicians who are able to utilize the media to achieve those goals can absolutely easily manipulate emotions because they have the access to the people, television, internet, uh, um, radio. You know, you have, as a president, you have the ability to do all of that because you can go on TV, you can put your face out there and people will give you the benefit of a doubt and listen to you. And we have seen that with every president. People will grant a president the benefit of a doubt until he makes too big of an error. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely the absolutely the the, the case. So that gets up to two thousand and eight. This is my first presidential election. Um, I know for a fact you did not vote for Barack Obama. No, I didn't. Third party again. Yeah, so this is Barack Obama and John McCain, and you're back on your third party voting. Why not? Why was John McCain not for you? He came across as being pompous, and I did not believe that what he says he endured in Vietnam was entirely accurate. Um, I found a lot of his credibility to be fake, and he liked being a contrarian, and I didn't really feel as if he would be willing to work for the best of the country or the people that he, you know, would just do whatever he wanted. I, I thought he would be a complete renegade president, unaccountable to anybody. Well, I, th I think I think that's what they were selling him as. Sarah Palin called him a maverick and all this sort of thing, and I, I think that was I think that was what they were selling him as. But that's what he was, you know. His you know his Senate record showed him to be a contrarian. His military record showed him to be a contrarian. You know, his representing Arizona, you know, as, as a politician from the get go, he was just a contrarian. You know? And he liked being a contrarian. 
And I don't have a problem with that, but I hardly believe that that can be a unifying force for the country if your whole outlook is, I, as we've found with local politics here, I, I know best and therefore what I know is best for everybody. And you know we've ran into that with politicians already that they, be, they believe or their administration believes that they know best and the rest of us just need to go along with it. But he was really in your face about it. And his daughter reflects that today where she's at, that you know she's in your face about that. And uh, you know that I think was off-putting. He he chose not to smooth his ed edges. He you know he didn't try, at least in my view, he did not try to reach out and appeal to a, you know a wider group of people. He just wanted people to take him as he was. And as a senator, you can do that. But as a presidential candidate, I don't think you can so much. You have to be better than that. Do you think the financial crisis and his seeming lack of any plan for dealing with it had an effect on, 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 on the eventual outcome? I think so, because people, once again, people were in trouble. Yeah. And he didn't have a plan. I mean, he wasn't able to articulate a plan. And I don't know, to me, I would, I think if I'm that much of a contrarian and I want to be a contrarian, my people around me better have a plan for me to be able to use my, you know, my cantankerous ways to show why my plan is better. Even if I'm going to be cantankerous, you better have, give me a plan. And he didn't seem to be able to get his people to even come up with an idea, which I, which surprised me because as a Senator and and working with the budget and stuff, he should have known better. But I'm not sure if he just thought that would be, you know, something that he didn't enjoy dealing with or thought he would just take care of it better or later, rather. I don't know. But he didn't bring forth the Senate skill set that he supposedly had as well as he could have. Well, and you know, it's very interesting. There's a documentary where they kind of gathered all the players from the financial crisis. And the person who also said exactly what you just said was actually Barack Obama. He said, you said he felt like, he said, if he said, I, I feel like John was not served well by his staff. Because remember they had that big meeting in Washington with Obama and McCain and Pelosi and all the everybody important to figure out what to do about the financial crisis. And, and it wasn't, they, they, he showed up and didn't have nothing. Like the Democrats came along and said, well, we really probably should save the banks and figure out how to get this through Congress. And he McCain shows up with the Republicans and they, you know, Bush is sitting there, you know, just kind of like, we're trying to figure out what to do because Bush is still in office for four more months. You know, we're trying to figure out what to do and McCain doesn't have any plans. The meeting devolves into a disaster. And I think that just kind of became the narrative. McCain didn't have any ideas of what to do about the financial crisis. And it was it was the scandal that soon began to define the 2008 campaign, and that combined with Sarah Palin, I think, made a lot of people uncomfortable with him. Uh, I don't know that Sarah Palin was necessarily a bad choice. I think that his team utilized her poorly. 
because she was ex you know, extremely popular in Alaska for the most part. And I think that if they would have allowed her to be the balance to his cantankerous, cantankerous ways, that that could have been successful because she did have ideas. They weren't ideas that her, his team necessarily wanted to hear, but she did offer ideas. And I, I think Mr. McCain had a tendency to shut out people who did not agree with what he thought. He had a president and his a president's team he could have interacted with and got information from, and he chose not to. He chose not to accept counsel from the people around him. To some degree, he brought that lone wolf reputation on by choosing not to utilize his staff as well as he could have. And I think, frankly, he chose the staff that way. He wanted a weaker staff because he, had, he's, he was a strong personality and he did not like to be confronted. And I think that's where they ran into a problem with Sarah Palin, even though she got slammed for a lot of stuff. As a vice presidential candidate, she didn't have a whole lot of control over anything. And she, in some regards, um, got clobbered because of how he also reacted to her. So, he, you know, he hurt himself not only with his vice president candidate, but he hurt himself because he chose to have weaker staff around him instead of somebody who could say, John, you need to stop. And we need to, you know, get a plan in action, and and he chose not to do that, and and it and it showed. No, no, definitely, definitely. That brings us up to 2012. Now, I I've talked about this at length. I only voted for Obama once. By 2012, I was never I was tepid about Obama in 2008, and by 2012, I had had it. Was not impressed. Was ready for a change. I voted for Mitt Romney. How about you? Third party. <laughs> you and your third party voting. Um, I could not stand Mitt Romney. <laughs> I've always said this, him. and people think I am nuts. I think Mitt Romney would make a great president. Oh, ick. He didn't do that great for Massachusetts. The man is like a nomad. What state can I go to that will elect me to do something? <laughs> I mean, big facts, like <laughs> governor of Massachusetts, senator from Utah, he, he, Mitt Romney gets around. That's Yeah, just like true. Hillary. I'm from Arkansas, but then I'm from New York. Come on, any, you know, uh, no. He, you know, uh, today he looks pretty, you know, I guess pretty central, but at the time he was not, not to me, still not. He really wasn't a Republican with Republic, you know, at that time, Republican values. You know, he was definitely willing because he came out of Massachusetts. He was willing to tax the Dickens out of everybody. I mean, he had the big ditch problem. I mean, look yeah. how bad that was. Yeah. No, I mean, that he, was, you know, he hasn't that, necessarily yeah. done that well for Utah. I mean, it's, it's pretty sorrowful when your own state party is booing you off the stage and are quite happy with telling you that they're fine with doing it but i mean conversely though i think much of that it would with mitt romney now is because mitt romney was the only republican to vote for the first trump impeachment um to vote to convict and has loudly contradicted the whole trump agenda and 
the Trump agenda has really taken over the Republican Party and and Mitt Romney's not on board with that. And so he's, you know, he's in a very odd position in his party these days. Well, yeah, the Republican Party is split. You know, I, there's no denying that. Yeah, that there are there are those that you would that one would call their 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 Democrat lights versus the populist party of Trump. Um, it'll be interesting to see who comes out of it and actually gets control of the, the Republican Party. Despite everybody preaching that it's Trump, I really don't think it is. But at, at the time with Romney, Romney's problem was Romney didn't know when to shut up. And he didn't think about the things he said. He, he made himself look old when he came out with the you know, binders of the women. Binders of women, yeah. And, you know, he made himself look old at that point, And that did not help him. He has since learned to be a little more careful about how he speaks. He's more circumspect about it than he was then. Um, but again, he was, you know, he could say stuff like that in Massachusetts and get away with it. But in the rest of the country, not so much. And so... I that that hurt him. I mean, that really hurt him with the the woman vote. You know, the media just went all over him, you know, about how he just didn't care about women, even though, you know, he had, you know, a wife and kids and grandkids, you know, females. And, yeah. you know, they stepped up and said he's not like that, but it didn't matter because, you know, the, the media and the Democrat Party ran with the binders of women and they made it sound nasty and that just that did him in and and, and the, the the romney campaign i think or the republican party as a whole in 2012 did not understand the power of social media nope. the obama campaign invented how to run for president on facebook like, oh yeah and the romney can't even by 2012 the republicans hadn't figured it out and the romney campaign never figured it out and nope. so that was that was that was kind of just kind of multiple odd sort of factors. Um, I think everybody was surprised, least of all, I think Barack Obama himself in 2012, considering how not great. I mean, history has has forgotten it now. Things were not great for the Obama presidency going into 2012. Like it, you know, there were some, there were quite a few problems. The recovery from the financial recession was not going anywhere fast. Um, the economy was still very weak. Unemployment was still not great. The nothing had really happened with the wars. I mean, it was you know, it was it was going in twelve was really tough for the Obama people, and I think they were themselves surprised that they won again. It, you know, actually, it was their race to throw away. I think, you know, um. Romney was, you know, nothing at that point. You know, it, it would have taken Obama doing something extraordinarily awful for him to lose that race because Romney had made himself look so bad. So, you know, it there there was just no way Obama couldn't, you know, couldn't win that. So, um, you know, it, you know, so that that was the deal on that one. You know, I, so, I I I attended the. Uh... Colorado Republican Party election night watch party at Mile High Stadium in 2012 because I was still working in Republican politics at the time and the the mood in the room was quite surprising. I think a lot of people thought Romney was going to pull it out. Yeah. I so. I know the hope was big there. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. 
Well, that that leads us to everybody's favorite election of all, 2016. Yeah, Trump yeah, yeah. v. Clinton. You said you didn't vote for Trump. Uh, not true. Not true. Oh, you voted for Trump in 2016. I did vote for Trump. It was a negotiated vote. <laughs> <laughs> How did you negotiate this vote? Walk me through that. It was a negotiation between me and John. Um, I wanted one thing on our ballot. He wanted another. And so it was negotiated (laughs) that if for me to get what I wanted, I had to give him what he wanted. So so that is what I ended up doing. And so I ended up voting for Mr. Trump. And um, (laughs) there's been pluses and minuses. He's very charismatic. Um, he does have his problems. He, you know, he like any other politician, he didn't keep all of his campaign promises either. I still do not understand why people are so vociferous in their hate. I have never, I don't think I have ever, in the years I've been around, seen someone as hated as this particular person is, and not just him but all the people that have voted for him. I, I find that disturbing to be honest in that one can't, after you know, a, a, a president has lost or you know, moved on, why it is still necessary in this day and age to not only hate him, but hate his supporters. I just, I do not get that. I think, to me, I think that is obsessiveness, insanity, too much emotion, you know, a a lack of ability to um, be reasonable, too emotional. I, you know, this was all about emotion. There was nothing reasonable about the campaign. It was just about emotion. And because of the emotion, you, you know, the Democrats ended up with Joe Biden, and that's what we've ended up with as a president because there was really no other candidate that the Democrats could offer up that would be accepted by a good portion of the Democrat Party. Well, but that that's, I mean, to, to, to circle back to 2016 for a second, well, we'll get to 2020 in a jiffy. But 2016 for a second. So I, I, I was a hold my nose and vote for Hillary Clinton, Democrat. I have my issues with Hillary Clinton. Um, I think t- towards the end, I started to actually kind of like her. But I think the biggest problem with Hillary Clinton is she is she's highly educated she's an academic people just don't like her there's something about and i get that because i'm this kind of the same way there's something about her people do not like i think that that, that 2016 with her because they had the same problem with ivanka trump or any of the trump women matter of fact any of the women even michelle obama there's been problems with strong powerful women i don't I don't care what color you are, for the most part, 
there, even among women, there's a struggle with accepting a strong woman. And we see that with Kamala Harris today, that, you know, how she's made her way to where she is has been called into question. Whether she's, you know, one considers her powerful or strong or whatnot, she would, she couldn't get to be president on her own because of how she was and her, I think her being female. I don't think her policies did her any favors either. Um, but with Hillary, I think that's the same problem. You know, strong females are just not easily tolerated right now in a political office. And unfortunately, I think when you look at the Pelosi's and you look at the Feinstein's and you look at um, just women in general within Congress that you see any strong woman is getting hammered. That's it, more true of the left than the right. I mean, who's it, that? Well, I mean, you got people, green. people don't you got go Marjorie after, Green out there. But people you don't go after it. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska or the gal from Maine, what's Susan um, Collins. Collins. Don't go, they, I feel like women on the right get much more of a pass than women on the left. I and part of that's probably, how the left treats women. But the women from the right get much more leeway than women from the left. Uh, just well, I guess it depends on where you're coming from. If you're on the left, you're not a big fan of Murkowski and Collins because they're they're women and they're not supporting women's issues. True. If you're a woman on the left, you have certain issues that you're supposed to endorse. But at the same time, the problem with the women on the left, unfortunately, Nancy Pelosi is a classic example, and so is Kamala Harris. And unfortunately, Hillary was too. They're screechy. And no yeah. one cares for screechy women. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, and women need to, to learn that. They, they need to, I, I know everybody says you just got to accept them as they are. Well, no one accepted John McCain for him being cantankerous. And most voters are not going to be too accepting of women who are screeching all the time. And if they don't figure out how to modulate that, that's always going to be a problem for them. And that is one of the things that Susan Collins and Murkowski has learned. And unfortunately, the Marjorie Greens of the Republican Party hasn't learned it yet because they are going up against the AOC part, part of the Democrat Party. So you've got now you've got screechers coming in on both sides, on both parties, and it's becoming yes. an ugly sight because now you've got you've got the, the cat fight. You basically have got women fighting women and everybody else is sitting on the sidelines going, well, isn't this entertaining? Do you think that George Bush and Donald Trump benefited from having quiet first ladies? They, they they only hauled Melania out on a few select occasions and Laura Bush, you know, did her reading program because she was a teacher and all this type of thing. And like, but, you know, we, Laura Bush was not in our lives every day. Melania was not in our lives every day in the same way that Hillary Clinton was in the 90s or Michelle Obama was in the, in the 2000s. Um, I, I think that it aided them because... 
I think with Hillary and Michelle, it we it became a, a vision of husband and wife competing against each other to be who can be the the bigger power between the yeah. two of them. And I think people noticed that and people prefer one member being supportive and the other member being the leader. And that I think comes back to Nancy Reagan because Nancy Reagan was accused of being the leader in the second term of Ronald Reagan's presidency. And people struggled with that. And then you had Hillary and Michelle out there doing it completely in the open. And again, I think because of how they were pushing all the time of who they were, that women who would have been tolerant of them was put off by them because they chose not to embrace all women. They chose to only embrace working women. And at that time, there was still a lot of at-home women, and there still is. And it doesn't do a, a woman very good to be putting down the stay-at-home crowd. And yeah. Hillary and, Obama, and, and Michelle Obama was pretty blatant about how they didn't like that. You had Hillary with her cookie comments, you know, yes. with Tammy Wynette during, you know, Bill's impeachment trial. You had Michelle out there speaking about how, you know, she couldn't respect women who stayed at home and, and did nothing but support their man. I, you know, there was a certain level of contempt there that did not make them attractive. Well, I think that's I think that's still true today. I don't yes. think that's gone anywhere. No, I, mean, I don't I think, think it's I think, changed. I mean, I, th I think on on the left there are a lot of a lot of women who really have some resentful issues towards women who choose to stay home and raise children. And I agree. And I've you know I've been down that road, and I understand it completely. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you are considered a set-at-home and eat bonbons kind of mom that you don't do anything else other than just sit at home and again, watch soap operas and eat bonbons while, you know, other women are out there, you know, working and sweating and on and on and on. And then, unless- And women, I can say that my mom was a stay at home mom for like 15 years and did not watch soap operas, does not like them even now. I didn't eat <laughs> bonbons every day either. No. You know? <laughs> but you know, it, it uh, you know, women are, Unless a woman can come along and Kamala Harris is not it. If a woman can't come along and unite those two parts of any of the voting blocks, there's never in the near future going to be a successful lady by a lady president if they're going to alienate the part of the people that stay home and choose to raise their kids and choose to. Um, be supportive of their husband's careers and stuff. And, and, and here's what's funny is in in Democrat leadership, there are many former stay-at-home moms. Nancy Pelosi is Catholic, has five kids. She was a stay-at-home mom before she got into politics. She didn't get into politics till her 40s when her kids were grown. And yet she does not. Most people don't know that about her, but it's true. But she doesn't bring it, she doesn't bring it forth either. She makes no. it like it was a bad thing. Yeah. And Barbara so, Boxer, big feminist, yeah. was a stay-at-home yep. mom when her kids were young. It, yep. It's but, throughout the, the part, like, you know, it's throughout the party, but you wouldn't know it based upon the narrative. 
Yep. And, and, but that's the narrative they bring forth as if staying at home is a bad thing. Yeah. And to me, they should be promoting it. They should be out there saying, I stayed at home. But, you know, part of the problem is you got to prove up that you stayed at home and you were somewhat average income versus stay at home and you were moderately wealthy. Well, I mean, and let's, I mean, let's also face it in this state, particularly here in 2021, one does have to be a certain amount of middle to upper middle class in order to be able to afford to stay at home. Because the part, and it's mostly the price of housing. The price of housing is so expensive. Yep, that's that's true, and and it requires certain amount of sacrifices. And our culture nowadays is not appreciative of sacrifices. You know, it's more of the you know just go out and get it. You know, take a loan out, get it on your credit card, and you know, so that is a challenge too. Until we're willing to step up and say, sacrifices are worth it for the now to have a better future, we're going to continue to have this disrespect of, you know, of the uh, stay-at-home mom, the, you know, saving for now, you know, to prepare for the future, you know, all those little things that, you know, that people don't want to be bothered with right now. No, no, that's, that, that's very true. Which brings us to the 2020 election. Um, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I maintain without COVID, Trump would have gotten reelected. I agree. He would have because the media was so, and though it's being, you know, he's being vindicated now about the virus and where, you know, likely where, you know, came from and, and how it was created. And, you know, they don't like the media does not want to give him credit for getting the vaccines going. They're okay with giving it to the Biden administration, but you can't have a vaccine, you know, ramp up like that in a hundred days. It was there before Mr. Biden was elected. But again, this- I mean, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of people accused Trump of being racist when he said that the Chinese were responsible for, for, for the virus. But now the lab leak hypothesis has gained quite a bit of mainstream success. And there's evidence that certainly points to it. And, and the simple fact of the matter is when it came to controlling this and letting people know so that it could be kept in China, the Chinese covered it up for at least 30 days, if not a couple months. And they were not responsible in letting people know, oh, we have a problem. And yeah, yeah. although he was accused of racism at the time, it's kind of been, it's kind of been vindicated. Um, on, on on that aspect of it and i think that's interesting i and i think that i you know you can call it a conspiracy theory or whatever but i truly do think that it was in the media's interest and the biden campaign interest to no matter what came out to not promote it until after the election because you're right if the if covid had not taken over the country like it had in the panic and everything and the lack of good information on how to deal with it, I think the economy would have stayed strong and I think that Mr. Trump would have been reelected. But instead, you know, you're fighting a, a battle of attrition. You know, the media hates you. You know, you're, pro you know, provoking the media. You're constantly poking at them, which, you know, just, it becomes a vicious loop and, you know, it feeds off of each other. and 
the you know it, you, you can't deny for the most part the media has their bias and their bias was not at this point in time above board reporting because i do think that they could have shown way earlier that the covid virus the coronavirus did come out of china and it did come out most likely come out of the lab especially when it was still known back then that those three doctors went to the hospital in November, that woman said that those three doctors went to the November and everybody poo-pooed it. Yeah, and, well, and, and, and now that the, the wet market thing has been entirely disproven, no bats were being sold at the Wuhan wet market, that really bolsters the, uh, the, the lab leak hypothesis. And I think it's important that we get a clear understanding on that you know, for, 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 for the future. Well, uh, you know, as we talk about regulation, to some degree, you know, people talk about, well, we need to regulate, you know, Facebook or Twitter and, and Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram and all talk about, well, we need to change internet regulations. I have arrived to the point where we need to maybe relook at um, journal integrity, journalistic integrity, because for the most part, it seems in the last 10 years that journalists and integrity are two things that do not meet ever, you know, as witnessed by, you know, the reporter that wrote the lying story at the New York Times. Yeah. And, you know, reporters that won't bring forth, you know, accurate information because it doesn't support their agenda. And I, it's no small wonder people don't believe anything and that misinformation is easy to get around because journalists and integrity are not insisted on right now. And journalists are the ones that's got to do that. And, you know, coming at it, after, coming at COVID after Mr. Trump is gone and trying to say, well, now we have integrity, just at least in my view, just shows that you were a hypocrite from the get-go that you know you obscured, obscured, obscured all this, and then when your candidate got there, now we can be candid about it and make him the hero, even though the timeline says not that's not true either. So they're not even attempting to even allow that. You know, Trump got the virus online. Trump got where it came from right. Yeah, you know, they're still trying to, you know, you know, smooth it out to where somehow it was still Mr. Biden's success. And there's a group yeah. of people out there that just are not going to believe the media because of this inability to throw your facts out there and let them fall where they may. They wanted people to you know, believe that Trump lied all the time. But what do you call a journalist that hid you know, the information about Wuhan or chose not to acknowledge where and who started the vaccine program? You know, well, that, that yes. doesn't do well. Well, and one of the things I thought, even though it ended up being costly and trade wars don't necessarily work out that well, I was glad, one of the things I think Trump did very well was standing up to China on, on trade. China dumps steel, destroyed the American steel industry, dumped solar panels, destroyed American solar panel manufacturing, all this sort of thing. And neither Clinton, who did most favor nation trading status with WTO, or Bush or Obama ever did anything on trade with China. And it has been to the detriment of the American economy. 
And Trump was the first president to say, eh, not so fast, and restructured trade with China. I That was a good move on Trump's part. Yes, it was. And people don't like to admit that either. And, you know, I mean, there was a lot of Trump It hurts my that, soul a little. I don't like to give Trump credit for much of anything, but I'll give yep. him on trade. Uh, you know, I understand that a lot of people don't. And I, you know, I think that too many people were offended by his personality and not necessarily his policies. You know, you can, to me, you can have issues with people's policies, but, you know, their personalities, you know, come on, because there's a lot of people out there that, you know, may not like or don't like Mr. Biden. I, you know, I don't think he is that great person as a personality either. I don't know what, you know, right now I'm not a big fan of his policies. You know, I, it, time will tell, but I, I am more willing to look at his policies versus looking at how his behavior is. Because there's a lot of people that just focus on that. And I think that's the wrong thing to focus on. You can like or dislike the man, but you should be more concerned about his good or bad policies. And that's not what the media focuses on. And that's not what people focus on either, because, you know, that's not what Facebook or Twitter or Instagram puts out there. And but I think con that's conversely, conversely, though, many Republican voters admitted that they wish Trump had tweeted less because Trump was constantly, daily, hourly, so inflammatory, and he trafficked in sexist language, racist language. He never seemed to want to be that inclusive. He seemed to be okay with being president of his supporters, but he never really did much to be president of the whole country, including people in his own party that weren't a huge fans of him. Like, he liked that 35% of people that really liked him, that's who he seemed to be focused on, and the rest of us could just bugger off, including yeah, other Republicans. Tell, tell, you know, tell me which which presidential party or president of a party has never done that. I can't think of one unifying president in the last fifty years. I think maybe Eisenhower, maybe Kennedy. Kennedy might, you know, be the last one. But I don't think there's been a unifying president since then. I don't. I, I feel like even George Bush was not focused. I mean, even just looking at conversations with Republican presidents, I don't feel like George Bush attacked Democrats and was only the president for his party. I feel like uh, Bush did a good job of reaching out to Democrat voters. You know, the reason why that is, though, is because George Bush embraced democrat values and that is was part of his problem when he didn't win so much the second time around is that people noticed that he wasn't upholding what they felt were republican values that he was out there saying yeah let's embrace all this democrat value and that's what got you know got him laughed at about the compassionate conservative you know, he wasn't being a conservative as conservative, you know, supposedly was at that time. He was being, you know, more of a Democrat. And, well, and that, I, that would that would help get the Tea Party off the ground in 2010. Yep. You know, I mean, that would help the Tea Party get off the ground because the whole ethos of the Tea Party was trying to get more Republicans in office who would, and I would know I ran a Tea Party publication. I was at the scene of the crime. Um, 
to get more Republicans into office who would really stick to Republican values. Hardcore. Right. Yep. You know, and, um, yeah. and that's, you know, that's a problem that, you know, that, of you know, the 35% you're referring to, that's the part that they don't care for is they're okay with compromises. They're not okay with the 90-10 split. You know, and that's where it generally seems to work out in a lot of cases. And that's what made Trump popular, you know, at least, you know, in the front was that, you know, he was willing to take a hard line and, and have Democrats come meet him versus him giving in to them. And, and it did, it did cause hard feelings. You know, him and Pelosi, you know, Pelosi made her contempt pretty well known, which I don't respect her for because I don't care if you don't like the president or not. You don't throw the tantrums that you do and disrespect the office of the president, which is what she did with her tearing up the speech. That was, that was totally disrespecting of the office of president. You know, you wanna have your fit, you, you can have it after words, but you don't do it on national television. And that is what hardens a lot of people against Nancy Pelosi and Democrat party is because she expressed what the 35% believe she thinks of them and what she says about them, along with Hillary calling them deplorables and so on and so forth. You don't win people over by calling them names and calling them terrorists and treating them like they are forever um, white supremacists because that's not an accurate out, you know, that's not an accurate view of the party, but that's makes it easier to demonize a party to get your agenda. And that is what Trump did not allow to occur. And that's what made many people feel that he was a, you know, the candidate for them because he was standing up for them and not treating Con them. Like Conversely though, it is very difficult to not look at today's Republican party and not see a legacy of white supremacism all over it. I mean, Holly, okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these people, like it's, it's a hard, it's a hard sell to not say that. I mean, I, I know that's probably not necessarily true, but the narrative messaging isn't helping that perception. Let me put it that way. Well, I, yeah, I am of the opinion people should be allowed to believe what they want to believe. And I should have the right to, you know, believe what I want to believe. And we Everybody. also live in a pluralistic country with a variety of people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And it seems to me that today's Republican Party is not okay with that. They would like to go back to a country where the minorities stay quiet and white people are in charge. And that's the way it should always be. Who was the party that tried to block civil rights in the 1960s? Yes, who I know. Was... Southern Democrats who were unhappy. Yes, I know. But we also know there's been a political realignment on these issues. Not Thanks entirely. to Nixon and the Southern strategy in 1972. Not entirely has it realigned. You had good old Robert Byrd, who didn't realign, and Hillary was a buddy of his. So, you know, 
one could still say there's elements of the Democrat Party that if you look at what they are doing to minorities today, and we're talking white Democrats, the antics that they're doing today does not help a lot of what you know the minorities are wanting. I mean, frankly, some of the policies is like saying to minorities, we know best, you are not capable of taking care of yourself, so we're going to make all these laws that will protect you because you're incapable of making a good decision. So we'll take care of you. And I find that awful. I think if Democrats want to claim the high road, they need to be passing laws that actively encourage minorities to be able to be self-sufficient, be able to be in their own communities and uh, be able to be leaders in their own communities. And if they want, if they want to go back to segregation, so be it. I think their ancestors would roll over in their graves because that's hardly equality if you're going back to segregating. But I'm okay with that because you know what? I don't want to go live up in Minneapolis with the Muslim population up there and have to be in a burqa. And that is the problem with what the Democrats in my view, have done. And some Republicans, I'm not going to disagree that the Republicans have their flaws as well. But the laws are not being made to encourage minorities to have the flexibility to be able to achieve their goals. There are white Democrats out there telling them this is what your goals should be. And that, to me, is not being respectful of minorities. Minorities shouldn't need white people to make laws to protect them. And minorities you know, should be given the flexibility to achieve the goals they want to achieve. And I don't see, I, frankly, I don't see the Republicans or the Democrats passing laws that allow that. So frankly, I think both parties are being somewhat oppressive about the whole thing. And they're using emotionalism to uh, to try to make themselves each good guys. I mean, there is definitely such a thing as, you know, there's too many people at the Black Lives Matter protests sort of thing. Like, you know, um, that's definitely a, a thing for sure. But anyway, this was supposed to be an hour and we've done almost two. So why don't we wrap things up? Sounds good. Um, my last question was, you have had some vaccine hesitancy. Are you still hesitant about the vaccine? Um, yeah. I, you know, I see pluses and minuses to it. I am of the opinion that governments need to leave people alone. If you choose to get vaccinated, then great but now it's none of your business about the person who chooses not to get the vaccine. Because if you're vaccinated, you're protected. It shouldn't matter to you about the person that's not vaccinated. It is their job to be concerned about whether they're going to catch it. And instead, what we're getting is this peer pressure event of, you know, uh, the if you don't get vaccinated, you're exposing me. And that's that's not right because if you're vaccinated, you can't expose anybody to anything. So I, I'm not 
entirely appreciative of how it's being presented and the side effects, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, people are having side effects. And people, too many people want to just blow that off and say, oh, it's, it, you know, it's no big deal. But to the people that it is affected, it's a big deal. And too many people that are pro-vaccination don't seem to care about that. that I, I was definitely point. nervous because like with the flu vaccine, I always get flu-like symptoms. And because I have asthma, that ends up being a six week to three month problem. And from the first shot, I did get a lovely chest infection. Second shot was nothing. Um, so yeah, I don't. I think those concerns need to be taken seriously. But the biggest thing is people need to quit throwing their their gauntlets out there, saying, "Well, I can't come back to work unless everyone's back vaccinated." As long as, according to the CDC and the WHO and everybody else, as long as you're vaccinated you shouldn't care about whether the other person's vaccinated or not because you're protected. And people are so obsessed about this, they can't let it go. They can't allow other people to have control of their lives. They are determined to force everybody to have to come to their way of thinking. And that is not a good thing for anybody because when everybody's thinking the same way, nothing will grow, nothing will improve, nothing will get better because everybody thinks the same because they're afraid to think different. And when you take that away, you're never going to get leaps in technology, leaps in medicine, because people are going to be afraid to express different ideas. And we see that already with the vaccines. We see that with um medical journals we are seeing so many people you know quieted or silenced because too many people believe it's got to be one way or not at all and the vaccine just has made that worse indeed what do you think is the biggest difference in politics between 1976 and today are we talking about Joe Biden today and Jimmy Carter or just in general? Well, like in general, like, like your, like in terms of presidential elections, your political life has spanned 50, almost 50 years, 46 years. What's the, what do you think, like given like political environments and the parties and all that type of thing, what do you think is the biggest difference between your first presidential election and your most recent presidential election? I, I find my first presidential election, I had a lot of hope that my vote would matter. And now after this last election and all the controversy, even with the Gore and Bush, you know, from Gore and Bush forward, I don't believe in the elections anymore. I, mean, I vote you in them. third party a lot. <laughs> I do. I still vote in them, but I no longer believe that my vote matters. And I think that's the tragedy out of all of this is that with the controversy of the voting and how the votes were counted or, you know, how the ballots were tallied, I, I think that I'm not alone in that, in that I don't believe in the system anymore. I think it doesn't matter. I, I don't, I believe that technology has made my vote irrelevant. But doesn't the election of Donald Trump kind of disprove that, though? Did what now? 
the election of Donald Trump kind of, I mean, I don't think anyone expected Trump to win. I don't think Trump expected to win. I think he did it as a marketing stunt as kind of a vanity project that kind of shows that votes matter. Enough people that live in the right states got together and decided they wanted a radical change and they got it for four years. That, I think, you know, you might have a point there, but I think that was before all the new voting laws have come in, for better or worse, for Democrat or Republican. The federalization of motor voter with same-day registration the desire not to have to prove you're a citizen for your vote takes away the value of the vote because people who don't have a vested interest in the country voting, if there's a significant block of them, they can change the outcome. And I don't I, I don't believe my vote matters because of the idea that everybody should vote, whether you're a citizen or not, everybody should vote. And I believe that it should be citizens. And if citizens have to prove up with a driver's license to go into a bar, or you have to prove up with a driver's license to go to a doctor, or you have to prove up with a driver's license to pay a bill online, I frankly do not understand why it is so offensive to require some sort of formal identification to vote and prove that you're allowed as a citizen, that you are a citizen and you know, be allowed to vote. And as, as I said previously, I think that dilutes the citizen's vote. And I don't think my vote particularly counts because as Obama proved, you can round up a lot of people, whether they're actual regist- you know, actual citizens or not. If you can round them up and get them all to the voting place, you can win an election of that nature. And I think that they showed that people that are not necessarily citizens can make a big difference. Hmm. Well, this has been an interesting tour of all these very, we have done like 50 years of American electoral history in two hours, which I think is fascinating um, from the perspective of somebody who was there. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Normally this is the part of the show when we would do plugs, but you don't do social media. So there's nothing to plug. That's true. I don't, I just, you know, I refuse to get caught up in that because again, I keep hearing the preaching about misinformation and social media does a lot of misinformation. (laughs) (laughs) yes well if the listener has questions and feedback or whatever for my mom um mention me on social media and i will i will forward the questions along so thank you for coming on the cameron journal podcast you're welcome that's all for this episode of the cameron journal podcast thank you so much for listening Visit us online at CameronJournal.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Allen on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.